0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Doxology Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, So this evening, we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can grab one of the blue ones from the back of the pew in front of you, and of course, you can also follow along on your phone. So once again, we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Betsy. Well, good evening, Doxology. It is great to be back with you. And as John mentioned, if you're new here, uh, really glad you're here. My name is Steve. And uh, this fall and next spring, we are working through the book of Hebrews. And the main theme of Hebrews is persevere, draw near, do it together. Uh, persevere, draw near, do it together. Really simple, we believe it's really important that, you know, you're not going to remember a lot of things from this sermon series five years from now, ten years from now, uh, but this you can remember, and so you kind of should be sick of hearing it by the time we're done, Uh, but in a way that helps you remember it, because that's going to help you fill in a lot of gaps as you live your life, and most importantly, as you treasure Christ. And so, um, and each passage in Hebrews will show us how to do that through a different lens. And so, what's this passage about? You may have, if, as you were listening there, you may have felt like a little whiplash back and forth just because he seems kind of all over the place. And there's a lot going on, and so we're not going to be able to cover every single nuance, but uh, because of that, simplicity will serve us well here. And in essence, what this passage is about in chapter 4 is the theme of rest. Rest, okay? You, the, the word is used about 10 times, and so that, that's the main idea of what, of what this passage is about. And we don't need a long introduction to, like, help us be convinced why this is an important topic for us living in this area. Uh, I was talking with John recently, and he moved here from Oklahoma, and he said, you know, like, one of the first things I noticed when I moved here is that was one of the greatest differences between the people here and the people in Oklahoma is, in Oklahoma, people get anxious if you give them a to-do list, right? It's like, come on, man, just trying to chill, go with the flow. Like, they get anxious if you give them a to-do list here, We get anxious if we don't have a to-do list, right? So it doesn't matter if the city is burning. If you have a checklist for things that you can do this week, all is well. And so um, as we look at this passage, I hope it is overall encouraging. It should challenge us, but hopefully it should be encouraging for us, especially in a city and just, you know, in America at large, where it's not just that being seen as busy and being seen as accomplished and important is a neutral thing, but it's seen as a positive thing to be busy, right, and be viewed as important. So let's see what Hebrews has to say about rest uh, through that lens of persevere, draw near, do it together. And so uh, as we go through this first, we'll see, okay, why don't we have rest? Why don't we have this kind of deep rest the author is talking about? Why do we often feel tired? Why are we often tired after vacation? Why don't we have this deep rest? Uh, Number two, how do we get it? And then number three, once we have it, how do we enjoy it? Okay, so first, why don't we have rest? Number two, how do we get this deep rest of the soul that Christ offers? And then number three, like once it's given to us, how do we actually enjoy it so that it's real to us in the day-to-day? Okay, so first, number one, uh, why don't we have rest? So let's look at, let's start at verses one and two. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So here the author, he's contributing the train of thought from chapter 3, in which he describes the Israelites being, you know, liberated from slavery in Egypt, God taking them to the promised land. And what you see here, see verse 2, the message they heard didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who listened. Um, So here is just one of the many places we see, even in the Old Testament, believers were saved by grace through faith right? Same way New Testament believers are. So they they weren't believing God. They weren't receiving his grace through faith. And so what was going on is over and over as the Israelites were in the wilderness wandering, as God kept saying, put your trust in me, put your identity in me, and they didn't do it. They decided to put their identity in other things, in the gods of the surrounding nations. And because of this, the Israelites, they didn't enter God's rest, we see in verse 1. And uh, here the author, when he's talking about entering God's rest in their time, it was referring to the promised land of Canaan. Um, but for believers today, that was a, the promised land was a pointer to the rest that were offered in eternity. Uh, you heard Luke allude to this at the start of the worship service, the new heaven and new earth that all those who are united with Christ receive. And one of the things that makes this passage confusing is rest is used to mean multiple things. Uh, so in one sense, it's, it's used to describe this future new heaven and new earth that we're going to get. But how it's also used is to describe this deep, like, absence of restlessness that we deal with today, right? This deep contentment we could have in light of our future. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Like, because we could, get, we could take one of two directions, and we could look at, okay, our, our future rest. But since we focused on that last week, right, and helping one another persevere so we don't have hardened hearts, today let's look at how does Christ give us a deep rest today and a deep contentment today? And we see at least two ways in this passage why we don't have this rest that Christ offers. And the first one is, if you see in verse 9, he's saying, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, and so there he's referring to the fourth commandment. Okay, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy or keep it set apart. And what's interesting is when you go and you read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and you see the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, to, you know, take a day off of your labor— uh, you know, for serving others and enjoying God, it's, it's not only the longest commandment of the 10, which I found intriguing. It's like God would, God knew we'd have an issue with it. Uh, but also it's the only commandment that roots the command in creation, right? So it says, um, remember the Sabbath day, and then essentially for God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. And so what's going on there? By the author grounding that command to take rest in God is creator What God is communicating to us is when we take a full day, right, to rest from our labors and then take many Sabbaths throughout the week, it's not just restorative, it's a reorientation to the fact that God is the creator and sustainer of the world, not us, right, because when you and I have a hard time just setting it down, what that reveals is that ultimately we believe we are the sustainer of our own worlds and the sustainer of the universe instead of God. And so when we put our work down, it's it's actually is inviting us into trust, where we can say, okay, I feel like I need at least, I need to, I need to do it another hour. I need to work Saturday. I need to work Sunday. God invites us to trust Him that He will take the time that we put in, and then produce the fruit, because He is the one that can create something out of nothing, not us. Okay, so this is the first reason why it's so hard for us to rest. Is because I mean this is a human problem. All of us believe to some degree, that, like if. That's why we often have that voice of, but like, but I have more to do, but I have more to do, but I have things to do, is because we think we need to uphold our own little world and produce fruit, not entrusting it to God. That's the first reason why it's so hard for us to rest. And the second reason why it's hard for us to rest, and this is more unique to our time and place in our modern Western culture, and that it's how it relates to identity, and so we saw in verses 1 and 2 of the Israelites, they were called to put their trust and their identity in God, and they didn't, and that's why they didn't experience rest. And so for us, it's very much the same, but it expresses itself differently. And so, in fact, I think it's harder for us to enjoy rest because of how we go about identity formation. And so pretty much every other culture in human history, they thought about their sense of self in familial and communal terms. All right? so Thor, son of Odin, right, you thought of yourself in terms of your, I mean, but seriously, like, you're, like, if your parents had status, then you had status, right, when you did your work, it wasn't about, you know, okay, is this fulfilling to me or not, the question of does your work make you happy, or is your work advancing you, that question wouldn't have even made sense to so much of the world until us and our time and place, right, because they thought it in terms of, okay, is this helping my town survive? Is this contributing to my family, right? So they thought in communal social terms. But for you you and me today, we think through what? Individualistic terms. Like the narrative that we inherit in the West, and all of us believe this to some degree because it's the air we breathe, is we live in the narrative, you can call it the me story. So when I think through who do I want to marry or if I want to get married, uh, what kind of job am I going to take? Where should I live? Just the natural questions we ask are things like, Does this excite me? Will this fulfill me? You know, will this help me grow? Will this help me express myself? Those kinds of questions. And those questions aren't all bad. I mean, the question, does this excite me, can be a good question. The problem is those questions are limited, and they're not meant to be the primary grid through which we view how we build a sense of self. And so now getting to the, what's the point? The point is, because our identity is self-constructed, right? What happens is with work is work is not just something you do as a means to benefit other people. Work is actually, it's a part of who you are, right? Think about one of the most common questions we ask each other when we meet someone new. What do you do? That's a question of anthropology. We're asking, like, what kind of human are you? And when work is part of your essence, what this means is for you to feel like you are somebody, that means your work needs to be extraordinary. And this is why we're so exhausted all the time. And one way I saw this uh, portrayed so clearly was an author I came ac- or article I came across in the New York Times written by, he's an author, his name is Benjamin Nugent, and he wrote an article called The Upside of Distraction. And so right, he's a writer, right? And he talked about how this spiral he entered into when he went to grad school for writing. And so he says he's, you know, he's in this uh, prestigious atmosphere, and he says that he realized with horror, as his professors and peers were looking at his writing, you know, at the seminar table, he describes it as, a cloud of boredom overcame them, and they struggled to care. And if, if you're a writer with a modern identity, that's like one of the most horrible things that can happen, because right, if they find your writing boring, that means you are boring, and therefore you aren't anybody. And he goes on to say, he says, I just entered this paralysis, and then Here's the line, he says, I realized that when the quality of my work becomes the measure of my worth, I needed my writing to be good in order to feel sane. Right? When the quality of my work became the measure of my worth, then I needed my writing to be good in order to feel sane. And I think he's expressing something with clarity and accuracy that a lot of us feel. Because we, we do this with everything, I mean, with every job, because our work is so tied to who we are. I mean, I was naively surprised that this happens in ministry, right? And people warned me of this, you know, don't go to ministry to, like, prove to yourself that you're somebody. I was like, I oh, don't happen. what happened, and then I started pastoring, and I was like, oh, this is, this is real. Yeah, even in pastoral ministry. It happens whether you're a consultant, whether you're a lawyer, if you're a full-time mom. Being a full-time mom is the hardest job in the world. You know, by the way, is we have this internal murmur of self-reproach. You know, am I good enough? do others think what I'm doing is praiseworthy? And on and on it goes. And because we have this ongoing murmur of just this self-reproach, this self-questioning, we can't rest because we're constantly questioning ourselves. You see, so this is why we're often restless is because either A, we're trying to sustain what we're production in our own world instead of trusting God the creator, or B, it's because it's tied to who we are and so we need our work to be good. And so if it's so hard to be at rest, and it is, then how do we get it? And we see this in verses 12 through 14. Um, So verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. If you've been in the church for a long time, this is a, you know, it's a classic magnet, refrigerator magnet verse, coffee cup verse. It, it's a great verse. Um, but notice that we don't often have the context, all this context of rest leading up to it. And then also what verse don't we, we don't usually include it with our scripture memory. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, that's God, to whom we must give account, and so exposed to the eyes of of him to whom we must give account. So as you think about one of the, you know, one of the appeals of social media, and texting even, is that we can control, in large part, like the person that we present to the world, right? So you don't see people taking selfies in the midst of a painful family fight, hey, and then posting it, right? But even with texting, I've no, it seems like now if you just call somebody without scheduling that call before a text, it feels like an invasion of privacy. <laughs> like your phone's just like, oh, you know, you freak out. Like, hey, man, you gotta text and schedule the call. But why do we enjoy texting, right, instead of calling? Like, wh- why, do, why is there a part of, of social media that's appealing because we can present, you know, only the parts that we want other people to see? And that's because we know that, you know, one of our greatest nightmares would be to be laid completely bare before other people, right? Emotionally, spiritually, and if someone could really see every single thing that you think, every single action you've done, I mean, even in the last two weeks alone, right, it would be be horrific because all of us, you know, we're filled with so many hypocrisies. We don't even live up to the same standards we you know, ask others to live up to. And pettiness and selfishness and shameful acts and thoughts and on and on it goes. And what this passage is saying is we can prevent other human beings from seeing, you know, even somebody you're married to or a dear friend from seeing. But God sees everything, you're completely exposed before Him. And this is hard. And it needs to be hard because only God knows you, the best. But you need to sit in that and embrace it because if you don't, you won't see the good news of verse fourteen, because it, it's all. I mean, in your Bibles, there's probably a you know a gap there where he puts it, but it, it's just it's all one train of thought. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. Holding your confession, this isn't just, you know, dry, sterile truths you're holding on to, but it's, it's holding on to Christ, you know, with confidence. And when, if verse 14 is true, then it makes verse 13 such good news. Why? Because when God sees you, he does see you exposed in all your mess. But instead of recoiling and pulling away, what he does is in love, he sends Jesus the Son. And in love, Jesus the Son comes for you. And as your high priest, what that means is Jesus represents you before God. And so when God looks at you, he sees the life of Christ, and the life of Christ was beautiful. It was beautiful. Always living for the good of the other rather than himself. Always listening to God's voice rather than his own desires never an act of selfishness, never taking something for himself. And at the end of this beautiful life, he went to the cross where he was exposed, where he was laid bare. Why? So that when you trust in him, it's not just that you're forgiven, although thank goodness you are, but his beautiful life is credited to you. And so now in heaven, in the the divine judgment seat, the only judgment seat that matters Now, instead of a divine judge, you have a heavenly and gracious Father who gives you all the adoration and encouragement and devotion that he gives Christ. And what does this do for you? What does it not do? Um, So this past summer, I came across this video. Those of you, so I'm not always up to speed with pop culture references and happenings, but I saw this video And uh, a lot of you, I think it's got like over 30 million views, so a lot of you have probably seen it, but it's from the show America's Got Talent, and I think it's kind of like, oh gosh, American Idol, right, that was the singing one, it's like that, but you can do, you you can do more talents, and uh, you know, so Simon, uh, one of the judges, he is on the show as well, and what they do in America's Got Talent is there's a golden buzzer where Each judge, once per season, if they see someone, they really, like, they can hit the golden buzzer. You know, all these, like, golden streamers come down. And it means it doesn't matter what the other judges think. It advances that person to the final round. And there's this girl. She looks like she's probably in her 30s. And she goes by Nightbird. I don't know her actual name, but she goes by Nightbird. And she gets up there. And the judges are asking her questions about how she she got there. And she shares how she has terminal cancer. Um, and the treatment is going okay, but it's not going the best. And But she's here because she loves singing. The judges are like, okay, all right, you know, right, we'll go ahead and sing. And she sings a song that she wrote. It's called It's Okay. And, I mean, the song is beautiful. Uh, you, you should listen to it. It's a beautiful song. She's got a wonderful voice. And after she finishes singing, I mean, the whole stadium full of people is just silent. And Simon looks at her, and, you know, Simon, he's not known for being a softie. You know, he just tells people how it is. And he says, the way you sung that song, like, you'd have no idea the hell you're going through and how much you're suffering. And, he re- and she responds by saying, you know, and I, I think she's a Christian, and she says, you don't need to wait for life to stop being hard until you decide to be happy. And, you know, Simon just starts crying, and he, he like, reaches across and he hits the golden buzzer. And, you know, so just all the streamers come in. The whole room just goes up, and they're just applauding. And she falls down. She's, she's in tears. And she, I'm pretty sure she wasn't thinking about her cancer. She wasn't thinking about the stress of being on stage. And, you know, when you see something like that happen, why does that strike a chord in your soul? And the reason it does for you, even when, when you just hear about it, and the reason why it did for her is because the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. When you have somebody that you esteem, that you look up to more than anyone else in the world, and they tell you not just you're not guilty, but you have a gift, and the world needs to have you in it. That's more precious than jewels. That's above all rewards. And the message that Jesus offers you in the gospel is that through my work and love for you, the Lord of splendor says to you with utter sincerity, it's not just that you're a gift to the world and you are because I designed you, but you're a gift to me. And even the most feeble act of service that's unseen that's done in my name will result, will, will result in glory for me and honor for you in the new heaven and new earth. And when you actually receive that, Now, when you go to work, what happens? Because before, when you would work, work was a means for me to say, I need to work hard because I need to know I'm worth it to somebody. But now in the gospel, you can rest because God says you are infinitely worthwhile to me. And before you used to work because you used to worry, okay, the world's gonna crumble if I don't keep working and working and working. Now in the gospel, God says you can rest. Because if I gave up my only son for you, how much more will I sustain you and make your efforts bear fruit when you honor my command to rest? I mean, my goodness. Because that's why we can rest. Because of this reality that God offers us. And then so once we have this reality, how do we take action to enjoy it? Right, because we we hear it, but then you know, as soon as something stressful happens on Tuesday, we're you know back to the back to the races. And so here are just a few ways that we can actually enjoy this and experience it in the day to today. Um, first is the Living Word. Right, we need to immerse ourselves in the Living Word. So see verse twelve. Uh, For the Word of God is living and active. Okay, and this is all in the context of gaining rest. And so notice that the Word of God is living. So one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is we approach it like a dead document. And so, you know, and we read it to learn things about God or maybe learn things about myself. And, you know, you can read a biography about Abe Lincoln or Abigail Adams, and you can learn a lot of great things about those people and know about them, but you don't know them. And when God describes the scriptures as living, what this means is when you read the Bible, you're not just learning about about God, but through the Spirit, you're actually encountering the divine. You're actually encountering God himself. And no one has the power or the care to make you whole in the way that God does. And so this is why it's so important that you and me spend regular time just immersing ourselves in the word of God. Because if we don't, then some other voice is going to be telling us how we find value and how we find worth. And that voice, whether it's your own voice or the voice of somebody else, isn't going to be nearly as potent or able or kind as the voice of your Heavenly Father. Okay, and so that's the first—if we don't—I mean, for a lot of us, the best time is the start of the day. If we don't begin our days with this regularly, then we're just—we're not going to have rest. We're just not going to have it. See, it's interesting on verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest— It's interesting. Strive to enter that rest. And so for a lot of you, you know, being in this area, like resting is going to feel like work because it goes against your disposition and the spirit of the age that we're in, right? And while striving to enter into God's family is a bad thing and a repudiation of the gospel, striving once you're adopted in God's family is a good thing. It's a sign that you have life because it's a sign that you're actually trying to embrace these promises that God gives you. Okay, so that's the first thing. We need to be in the living word, on our own, in community, doing what we're doing now, singing God's words, sitting under the preached word. Uh, next, number two, uh, what, do we, what do we need to do? And n- number two we need to do, can you help me out? Thank you, work less. Um, work less. So that's, all, that's thank you, Betsy. Uh, so it's, it's all over this passage. Um, we need, I mean, what an idea, huh? work less. And this can look, we don't want to be too prescriptive here because it can look different for different people but the point is, we do need to work less. And so, I mean, usually at minimum, depending on your schedule, it will be at least a day where you just set down your work and your labor and your email, but then also certainly you know, during the week, at night, in the morning, whenever. Because often what we find is sometimes when you're overworking, it can be, yes, about the organization or about the mission of the company, or maybe you are a law student about to take the bar, or you're a med student in residency. There are seasons right, where you're overworking, but the general rhythm of the believer should be working less than we're, than our natural disposition, and one of the reasons is because often, while the work often is about the organization we're a part of, more often than I think, if we're honest, it's about ourselves. It's about bolstering that sense of importance, you know, that we're actually contributing something, and while, you know, I mean, this is a different sermon, the Bible says so many things about the importance of working hard, and there's something good and holy about laying down tired after a hard day of work. Maybe some of you need that sermon instead of this one. But for today, we need to focus on, like, where in your life do you need to actually work less? Okay, um, because of all the reasons that God's been showing us uh, in, in this passage, right? So God invites us into the, the freedom of trust I- as we work less. So that's, that's number two. And then uh, number three, how do we do this? How do we enjoy this rest and this identity that God's given us? is number three, we have to, we have to help one another. So Hebrews is persevere, draw near, do it together. Okay, so this is something we need to help one another with, and I think there are a couple ways that we can do this. One is we do need to be, I would be mindful about, even just thinking about how often are you talking about work with your friends in the church? You know, is it the primary topic of conversation at discipleship group, at community group, um, with other people. And yeah, it's going to often be a big part, and we want it as a community, we're going to help one another with our work lives. But when it's the dominant note of the conversation, like, I, I think that can communicate something, right, about how important it is to us. So let's just be, be mindful about how often we're talking about it, because um, we, we talk about the things that we most value. Um, and then also, how can we help is just being in each other's lives, And, you know, helping one another see blind spots when we're working too much. And I so appreciated when at our most recent member gathering where uh, we were about to have our second baby, and some of you guys were like, so are you going to take paternity leave? And how many weeks? And if you're not going to take paternity leave, we're going to force you out of the church and find guest preachers. That, like, that was so helpful. And, you know, I know a lot of pastors who maybe take one Sunday off after having a baby, and they were shocked to hear that our church actually, like, was going to get mad if I showed up here to, and so just thank you for that. I mean, this is a problem for me over work, and so this is something we need to do in each other's lives, like, is actually helping one another enjoy this rest that God offers us. Um, And, you know, in closing, I I think once, what's one of the most amazing things about the commands God gives us is it, it brings us into the life we actually want, uh, so I was talking with one of our members before service, and they were they they were sharing how recently they had an experience that made them rethink just how they view their life. And they said, you know, it made me realize that when you're young, you know, 20s, 30s, even 40s, just kind of the assumption is now's the time for me to get promoted, for me to work hard, you know, to climb in my career. So then, when I'm older, then I can enjoy things like, you know, community, maybe family, love relationships and those that ki- that's just you know that's the air that we breathe. You know, sure yeah, we'll have some hangouts from time to time, but really our main mission is our job. And what they were saying is that they've realized is like if we wait, it's it's going to be too late. And you know, so what God offers us is so the thing about making your identity like the thing that's most central to who you are, your job is it's not just that you you know the axiom of you become lost in your successes, and, and that's true. But I think one of the most sobering things to realize is, once you get to the end of your life, if your identity is your work, and you know how people in your peer groups and in the inner rings in your f- in your field are approving of you, like what happens when those things are no longer there? Because that's going to happen. If your work is your identity, you know, if the quality of your work is the measure of your worth, once that goes away, and it will then you're no longer going to have a self left, right? Because who are you? And not only that, but what happens is when work is our main thing, and it's important, it's so important, but if it's our main thing, we miss what makes life so grand and beautiful along the way. Because what is it that makes life so beautiful? I mean, on a, to a lesser degree, trees and birds and chasing around a child or someone else having fun in a field praying over a meal with friends and family that you care about seeing somebody in your church grow seeing an unbeliever you know just express interest in Jesus or even just you helping them in some other like those are the things that make life so meaningful and that's because that's how we're wired in the image of God and so, when, and at the end of your life, I mean, all that's going to last is the glory of Christ, which we'll see in full when our faith becomes sight, and the investment that we've put into other human beings. That's what's going to last. And when you follow God's amazing encouragement, first to see who you are in Christ, and then to rest out of that, not only do you still have, I mean, what a sense of self at the end of your life if you, as you await to see your king face to face, but also you've been able to embrace the wondrous things and all the little details that God offers you along the way. So let's help one another do that as a community. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you give us rest that the world cannot offer. Uh, Help us to embrace it to believe your gospel and then to enjoy it. Help us to do it together as a community. Uh, It's just so hard uh, to do in this area, Um, but I'm so excited for what you can do in our lives um, as we obey your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.